It's Ms. Okada, and this podcast is episode 3 of Analysis of Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. And today, the chat is about chapters 1 through 3, focusing on the setting. Specifically, the world state's motto, Community, Identity, Stability. I'll discuss the world state's societal norms and how they are developed first through the creation of their citizens, then how the world state controls them. Huxley's bioethical criticism is really important to consider while reading these chapters to truly understand what he's satirizing. Buckle in. You're in for a ride because the world state... It's a hell of a place. Today, my special guest is Ms. Rayberg with her expertise in reproductive science. Hi, Ms. Rayberg. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Ms. Okada. Thanks for having me. So today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about Brave New World. In the novel, babies are not really made through sex or coitus. In fact, sex is only for fun and not to actually make babies. Babies are made in these factories. They're made in kind of like assembly line. You can imagine an assembly line to make cars. And that's basically what the factory is like. And that's how they make babies. So they start- That's where Babies R Us came from. Yes. <laughs> and so Huxley came up with this idea of this really cold and sterile environment where the beginning of the book starts with like these students that are walking through the factory and there's a guy that's explaining how babies are made to these students. And so he starts with terms like ova and spermatozoa and male gametes. And these ovas are taken from volunteers, volunteers, quote unquote volunteers. They're paid a good couple months salary well, for that's good. their, yeah, for their ova and then male gametes are also voluntarily taken voluntarily and they take it and they put it on a they call it a porous receptacle and then dunked in a and i love this quote warm bouillon a free swimming spermatozoa over and over again until they're basically fertilized and then they take each of those ovas after they've been inspected for problems and then they're put in a bed of peritoneum i don't really know what that is and then they bottle it in that thing and they they like literally put a cap on it, put it on a conveyor belt, and then eventually they're decanted, right? They're taken out of the jars. Instead of being birthed, they're taken out of jars. So how close is this, how babies <laughs> are made in our world? Okay. So the ova is, that's just a plural of ovum, which just refers to your egg. So that's science talk for an egg. Spermatozoa or spermatocyte is the fancy name for one sperm. Although bouillon of warm spermatozoa, I need to incorporate in my daily language is at least one. <laughs> today from now on. Um, <laughs> and so the peritoneum, that's the weird one because that is the bag of your abdomen that holds all your organs. It's a thin single layer of flat tile-like cells that surround the whole entire abdominal cavity but also lays on top of your organs. Mm-hmm. So it's just a really thin tissue and it has a blood supply but not enough to feed an embryo. So what would normally happen is that the spermatozoa would find the ovum, typically in the fallopian tube. If it's already in the uterus, it's a little too late. So it's got to find it in the fallopian tube. And then when it gets inside, that's where you finish up meiosis, which is the dividing of the chromosomes into half their number. So they finish up the last set of meiosis. And then when they come together, the two nuclei, then you get the DNA of the new baby. About two or three days after that, the cells have doubled, quadrupled, 16 old, whatever. <laughs> so they keep doubling exponentially. And then by the time they're about 100 cells big, that's when they fall into the uterus. And then that's when they need to implant.
plant. So they kind of like a little larva swim their way into uterine lining, which is thick and fluffy and full of blood supply. So I'm thinking that's what the peritoneum is supposed to represent. But the uterus lining is thick and it's just full of blood vessels. Peritoneum isn't. So that part seems kind of iffy that they wouldn't be able to get a good blood supply. That and you would need something equivalent to a placenta to constantly bring oxygen and nutrients into the developing fetus and then also to remove the CO2 and the metabolic waste away from it or else it would end up poisoning the little fetus and then it would die. So you said that they put them in like almost like a jar kind of thing? Yeah, kind of like a jar. And then just decant them afterwards. Yeah. So I don't know how they would plan on feeding and oxygenating the fetus for nine months until it was ready to come out because it seems like it takes less than nine months according to the novel. Oh, okay. But it's it's interesting. Like he wrote this in 1930, 1930-31. The science is not really something that is is plausible. Like today we can talk about test tube babies, but this yeah. was the 1930s. They didn't really talk about that. Or yeah. they could have been talking about it in a more like sci-fi kind of notion. Because um, even now, fertilizing outside of the body, the IVF, that would be, it would only be in the test tube for no more than a week or 10 days. Because uh-huh. by that time, it needs to implant into something. And if it doesn't, then it won't ever grow. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know how they would plan on that. You couldn't grow it fully in a test tube, a beaker, a container. Or something yeah. because you would need that constant flow of food and oxygen and something to filter out all the waste afterwards. So the book kind of continues with that idea of like having those those cells. So this is the interesting one. So there's this okay. process called the Bokanovsky process. But the Bokanovsky process, what it does is it takes one egg and one embryo, one adult that would be normalcy. He says, but the Bokanovsky-fied egg will bud, will proliferate, will divide from eight to 96 buds and every bud will grow into a perfectly formed embryo and every embryo into a whole-sized adult, making 96 human beings grow where only one grew before. So basically, Bokanovsky process means that they take this egg and they put it through a process, different processes of shocking it in different ways. So the Bokanovsky process, and here they talk about, they do like a hard x-ray, which makes it proliferate and then put it back in the incubator and then they chill and chill and make it really cold and cold and cold which shock it to become more and more buds creating more and more copies and then it's doused in alcohol and then that makes it bud every more it's kind of the idea of if you create stress on an egg it will proliferate and becomes twins and triplets and so forth and so on and basically what this world state's trying to do is to make copies and copies and copies of people in order to create a workforce okay so is that really how you get twins and triplets by taking an egg and creating to have so much stress? No. Typically, if you were to take an egg at, say, the 100-cell stage, you know, those are your the stem cells that can mm-hmm. turn into everything. And if you zap that sucker with x-ray, you're going to mutate that DNA. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to get not something human-looking or maybe a human with its legs fused together. So definitely x-ray would not be the way to go. <laughs> The cryo-freezing, the getting it really, really cold, it depends on how you get it cold because, I mean, you can put it in liquid nitrogen and they'll freeze. You can freeze your embryos until you're ready to have them. But if you freeze it like you would stick something in the freezer, well, 
then ice crystals would form and that would pop it. That would render it useless. So that wouldn't be good. So stressing things like that, that usually would not be successful in terms of making extras. How you make twins, and I'm assuming they're talking about like identical because you can have fraternal twins. That's just two eggs and two sperm. So that's just you and your sibling, but being born at the same time. Uh Um, But if you're having identicals, twins, triplets, or whatever, usually early on in the pregnancy, before mom even knows she's pregnant, that two-week window of who knows, by that time, the mass of cells that is the pre-embryo, it can actually kind of split in half. Uh And then because they all came from the same egg and sperm, they all have the same genetic information. And then if they separate and establish their own placentas, then you end up with identical twins. Sometimes it happens even earlier, like you have one cell goes to two, two cells go to four, and Mm -hmm. each of those four cells go off and do their own thing. How rare is that? Pretty stinking rare. I couldn't give you like an actual number, but I think I've only heard of maybe one or two cases in the U.S. What do you think about the science of being able to do that? Say we need, we are going to create this factory and we need the same types of people to work the same kind of job. And so do you think it's possible to do that? Theoretically, if you have your little pre-embryo, say at the 16 cell stage, if you could separate all 16 of those cells and embed them into 16 willing uteri, Mm -hmm. then technically they could continue to grow and become identical 16 lits or whatever that's called. But that would require the medical personnel to be able to actually separate them without destroying them in the process. And would you be able to take those 16 lits into more than that? (laughs) Theoretically. So say that one of the 16 starts Mm -hmm. multiplying Mm -hmm. and then he gets bigger and then you separate those out and then you can just keep, he never gets past that 16 cell stage because we keep breaking them down into individual blocks and divvying them up and then they start to grow to 16 and then you divvy them up and so theoretically yeah long shot frightening but but (laughs) i suppose you could make your own little army of clones of clones so like clone army speaking of that clone army one of the things they do in order to create this kind of mass army of humans Uh is to make sure that they all are inoculated with specific genetic markers so it's interesting that the book actually goes through and talks about how they inoculate specific groupings of humans that they create to have certain traits like genetic traits so say you have a group of them that you want them to eventually work in the subway line where they are going to be down underneath for really long periods of time they'll be inoculated at some point with some kind of disease that would make them i guess nocturnal they'd be able to see in the dark better than other people right have more rods than cones or something like that something like that or they have another thing where they turn the bottles of humans like they'll turn them upside down and they'll keep them like that while they're in in utero or inside their bottles so that when they become children and eventually adults they'll enjoy being upside down it's it's weird so (laughs) well that's funny because you know babies when they're inside they're upside down right side up sideways and you know they don't come out with a preference to genie you don't dangle your babies upside down to get them to be quiet (laughs) you don't think that uterine stimuli um, affects the development of a fetus right (laughs) not in terms of preference of gravitational position or anything (laughs) like that but i'm sure there are some things like you know if you eat a lot of spicy food while pregnant baby is more likely not right away i'm talking like later on Mm -hmm. in childhood they're more likely to tolerate those things because they've been exposed to it so they kind of have receptors that are ready to go you can train them yeah you can kind of train them to be used to something yeah but anyway 
point. So in the factory conveyor belt, they will inject certain diseases that would cause certain defects to create humans that would be able to tolerate certain things. So like I said, they would inject something that would make them nocturnal, like be able to see. Right. So a mutation that's advantageous for them. Yes. Is that something that you think will happen in the future? Not, well, I mean, it's already been talked about. So say you do IVF and you have two embryos, they can do a karyotype of each of the embryos, which is where you look at the chromosomes of each one. And they can tell you, hey, this one's going to have blonde hair. This one's going to have brown hair. This one has an extra chromosome. This one doesn't. And then you can pre-pick the traits that you want in your child. Now, they're probably not going to be anything super cool, like let you see in the dark. But I know, I mean, that was kind of the whole thing with Hitler and the Aryan nation. He wanted everybody blonde hair, blue eyes. Eugenics. Yes, exactly. Eugenics. And that's where a lot of the DNA study came from was them trying to figure out how do we make it so that only these traits come out. As for injecting traits into someone, that's difficult because to give someone an adaptation, you have to change their DNA. So you would have to, but although there is something right now, I'm not too big on the molecular genetic side, but I don't know if you've ever heard of something called the CRISPR gene. So this guy, it's kind of like when you have a doc and you do a find this word and replace with this word, you know, on the edit, but it's a gene and it says, go find this gene. And if you find it, replace it with this better gene. So in that case, you could make designer babies. So you could make a baby that has curly hair instead of straight hair or, you know, dark eyes instead of light eyes. And so there has been research. Now they say that they've done no trials on humans, but I bet you somewhere someone's playing around with that. I mean, they've created the three person baby so far, right? Or like Um, two female eggs or two sperm to make an offspring as well. And they've used CRISPR, basically GMO products is... what they're using CRISPR with. We're going to have to have labels on humans now that say that you're non-genetically modified. (laughs) That'd be funny. Are you organic? Why, yes, I am. Why, yes, I am. (laughs) But it is fascinating. He wrote this in 1930s, and it is a question of bioethics. And we talk about bioethics today and how far is too far. And there is a bioethics committee. There's a global one and a national one that is supposed to control all of this. And it's fascinating where our science is going and what kind of place it has in our society. How are we going to deal with this in the future? Yeah, I don't know. We could do this, but should we do this? And that's what a lot of bioethics is, is, hey, we have the capabilities to do these crazy things, but should we? Like, I think it all kind of started back with Dolly the sheep when we figured out how to clone Dolly. Well, there's rich people who get their pets cloned so they can have that special pet around for another 15, 20 years. You know, should we do that? It's not the same animal. Yes, they have the same genes, the same DNA, but just like identical twins aren't the same person, that's not going to be your same pet. Well, what if you could do that with a lost child? You know, what if you took a sample of a child that you lost and then used that to recreate a new child later? Should we do that? And it's these little things that might not seem too big because it affects one person at a time versus Aldous Huxley, who is creating this world and saying that if we continue with the science that we're going for from the 1930s, he's taking these eugenics ideas that were flying around him. Um, Bernard Shaw was really big into eugenics. Nazi Germany is coming up. Hitler's coming up at that time. And all of these ideas of eugenics is big at the time. Huxley's saying, what if we don't have bioethics? We don't have anyone to kind of stop this forward movement from happening if we don't have, well, 
I don't want to go too forward in the book, but it's more like if we don't have religion, that would stop that. Right. You know, what, what would happen if we don't stop it? What will happen in our future? And this is the world that he paints. And it is a dystopia. Yeah. I think we would all become guinea pigs. The individual would lose their self. You wouldn't be unique anymore. So you would be replaceable. If they out of a little army of a hundred and this person didn't quite get correct mutation. Oh, well, we don't need them anymore. Get rid of them. So it seems like you're losing the human aspect of it if you're just trying to create this army of genetically modified humans whose only purpose is to do whatever bidding you have. It seems like lab rats to me. Well, I think that's all the time we have, but thanks for joining me today. You are so welcome. I had so much fun. So as you just heard, Huxley uses this factory of babies, the creation of humans, as a symbol for what is wrong with our world. At first glance, the world state's motto, community, identity, stability, sounds great. I mean, humans are created for a stable society with people built specifically to do specific jobs with specific identities so that they would be a part of this community. And yet, as Ms. Rayberg and I discussed, it's frightening to imagine. It's a world where bioethics can actually go, of considering the effects of bioengineering if it wasn't monitored and balanced with ethics. It can seem utopic, as those who believed in eugenics of the 1920s and 1930s would argue, but we know where eugenics led to in the 1940s. It's absolutely dystopic. Although it might seem freeing to believe that we can solve all of our biological problems through genetic manipulation and creating superhumans, Huxley here warns us through the novel what dystopic future we may be creating. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned a little bit more about Huxley's world. Thanks for listening.